The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, God, that you are Lord over all, that by your providence and your sovereign will, you have allowed this day to be um, playing out in the way that it is. God, we trust in your character that you are good and you are faithful. We pray that as a church, we would honor you uh, first and foremost, and that, God, we would honor our leaders and the, the decisions that they're making, God. May we respect our government and the leaders as we modify our regular gatherings. And, God, I pray especially that you would have mercy on your creation, that you would stay the hand of evil, And that, God, you would use this time, this season of craziness to draw people to yourself. We thank you for this text, God, and we pray that you would be glorified and that your spirit would move among your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen? Excellent. So as we start off this morning... This is a fun morning. This is a fun text. What, Joel, what, Travis, what is the reason God has put you on the earth? Or you might ask it this way. What is your purpose, Katie? Or what is your meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? This is like one of life's great big questions. Like, why am I here? Now, the way that question gets answered for people across the world is in large context to what you believe or think about God, the worldview and the culture that you come from, you would answer that question differently. Some might say an answer straight up with the Westminster Catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is a very biblical answer. Some people might say, I'm just eat, drink, and be merry. That's all that life is about. It may be a statement. It may be a full-on answer to it. You do whatever makes you happy. Or the one that I've heard most recently is, you do you, boo, as a statement of this is what life's all about. For me, the question was answered on April 19th, 2007. My grandpa, my several of my uncles, my dad, a few of my brothers, and I all went to Summit to Summit. 
And I had recently been led by the Lord through this uh, transformation in my life of priorities, and he was drawing me fully to himself. Um, And I'd been praying for several months this question, God, what am I here for? What am I doing? Why do you have me here? Um, And we went into the Friday night session of Summit to Summit, and this Southern preacher stood up and said, man, do you want to know what your purpose in life is? And I'm like, yeah, I do, actually. Um, And he spent the weekend explaining this conversation of Jesus and the scribe to this group of men. Um, This, to me, is a really personal passage. I I really have, uh, my life has been transformed through the preaching and teaching of this passage And so I hope, my prayer is that we would be drawn closer to the Lord. We would understand him more from this one piece and the way that God has been working in my life for the last umpteen years. So just as a recap, over the last few weeks, our elders have been leading us through these different conversations, these different questions between the Jewish leaders and Jesus. They're trying to discredit him. They're trying to debate with him to... Uh, disprove his authority or to catch him in a lie or an untruth. The, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the chief priests, all of these ones are coming at him and they give him a, like a frontal assault and they say, who gave you the authority? And Jesus turns it back on him with a parable to show his authority. Or they give him a flanking assault and they say uh, with flattery, they're like, oh, you're so wise. And he's just like, whatever, knock it off. Um, and then they ask this ingenious theological question, like we got him here and Jesus goes, you don't even know your Bible. So he's taking on this debate. He's taking on this back and forth. He is willing to enter into these conversations. And that's where we come to this conversation where in the crowd, there's one man that we're, we have a record of here that is listening to the questions and the answers and the rebuttals, and the quietness, and he's going, Jesus is answering really wisely. And so now, to end this back and forth debate, we get a question of substance, and we get a question of meat, and we get a question of, uh, that some would say would be fresh, right? So we're going to look at this passage with, in three, or with three main points. We're going to first work look at the words of the scribe. And this is going to be a pretty quick point. Uh, we're going to just look at what the scribe asks, his response, and then we're going to move on to there to really the heart of the passage is Jesus's answer. We're going to spend the majority of our time in the answer of Jesus. And we're going to finish with the warning that comes in this passage, the warning of Christ. So the words of the scribe, the answer of Jesus, and the warning of Christ. So as we start off here, one of the scribes, verse 28. So who is a scribe? We've talked about Pharisees. We've talked about Sadducees. We've talked about Herodians. Now we come to scribes. So a scribe is someone who in the culture of the Jews was tasked with knowing the law, knowing the law so well that they would be able to answer minute questions about the law. They would be the ones who would record town decisions and documents. They would be the scribe for their town. They would be 
the ones that are called upon if a question came up that was too difficult for people to normally answer. They'd be like, go get the scribe, and he can work this out for us. Um, in the beginning of Jesus' life, the Magi come to King Herod, and they say, where's the Messiah? And he goes, I don't know. Call the scribes. And the scribes come, and they say, in Bethlehem of Judea, that's where he's to be born. Um, so Herod uses scribes. Jesus references scribes when he places a high watermark on righteousness. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying, these guys are something else, but, but they're not quite there yet. And then the people, when they're trying to place Jesus in a box, they're like, man, he has teaching but it's with authority, not like the scribes. The people compare Jesus to the scribes. So these scribes are, are men who know their Bible, who are living in a culture that is completely influenced by the Bible. And Jesus is saying, these guys are, these guys are something else. So when I was thinking of like, well, how to, how to say, like, what is a scribe? I would say scribes aren't chumps. Scribes are like, if you wanted to be something in that culture, you want to be like the higher of the high ups, you want to be a scribe. Like that's a great position with a lot of respect. This scribe with a worldview based on scripture, with a culture that is based on God, with a history of studying God's word, comes to Jesus with all of that and says, Jesus, what is the most important thing for me to do? What is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? What is all of this about? He would know that there were 613 commandments in the Old Testament. There would be 365 of them, one for every day. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. All the negative ones. Don't do this. There's 248 positive ones. Do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And he's going, which one? Like, what's the most important? What do we really look at and focus on? So his question is beautiful. And if you can come to a question with a worldview and a societal norm of like as biblical as you can, we have it here. We have a scribe saying, what is life all about? At the end of the answer, at the end of Jesus's answer, back down here in verse 32, Jesus answers him, and then the scribe says, you are right. You are right. All that you have said, Jesus, is right and is so much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So he's putting, if you would, a cultural, a Jewish stamp, a man's stamp on the words of Christ here. And as people of God, as we look at the at the Bible and we come to with questions and we go, God, uh, maybe kids will say this, God, I am really struggling with obeying my parents. I really don't want to right now. I really want to take the car out. I really want to stay with my friends. I really want, but your Bible says I need to honor father and mother. We need to then say, God, you are right. And I'm going to trust in that. Or the Bible says, and this is for our culture, the Bible says that he has made them male and female. And our culture is going, that ain't right. But as the people of God, we go, wait a minute, no. 
God, your word says it. You are right. And we hold to the word and we act like the scribe in the sense saying, Jesus, you are right. So as we go through our daily time of reading and we come to difficult passages, say in, first and foremost, God, I'm confused with this, but you are right. And then spend the time wrestling with God and praying with God. Work it out. I think that's where we see then uh, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, going, God, you're right. Help me to be made into your image. So that's really the scribe's answer. Here's this great question, a question of substance. Here's his response to Jesus' answer. You are right. So that's the words of the scribe. We're going to leave the words of the scribe, and we're going to just spend time looking at the answer of Jesus. So verse 29, Jesus says, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus first gives him the Shema, the Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, when this is being said to them, God is saying, listen, Israel, put your hands around your ears and listen. Hear me, please. God is saying, oh, my called out people of God. Now, Israel is the redeemed name of Jacob. He's not saying, listen, oh, Jacob, you you bunch of sinners. He's saying, listen, my redeemed people of God, listen, the Lord, that first Lord is the the big name of God. The, The word for it is the tetragrammatron, right? It is this huge word for the big name of God. Anything you can think of that is big, God's name is above that. So my boys are learning about atomic bombs, right? They're learning about World War II history and the atomic bomb, and they're going, that's a huge explosion. And we would go, God's name is bigger than that. Or you could say there's a thousand gods of Hinduism, right? And God's name is bigger than all thousand gods or the other names of other religions. God's name is above that. It's bigger than that. His name is Yahweh. His name is God or Jehovah, that big, big name of God. Hero Israel, that big God, the big name of God, your, our, our Lord, all of our Lord, the redeemed people of the Lord. He's saying that as we look at this, this is what is coming at you. This is the Shema. This is something that is so familiar in the life of of Israel, they would know this. And God, Jesus is saying, we need to come at this question with right believing before we come at this question with right doing. This is the orthodoxy before orthopraxis. God is calling us out to know this truth, this Shema. Listen, O called out, redeemed people of God, the existent one, the tetragrammatron, the one true God, our ruler, our judge, our divine one, Yahweh, it says, is one. When I first was like looking into this, I'm like, man, that's kind of deflating. Like, he's one? What does that mean? And it literally is, he's number one. Like, our God, 
big foam hand with the number one finger sticking up, waving back and forth. Our God is number one. That's the idea here. Our God, if we're talking about gods, is number one. Our hope, if we're looking for hope, he's number one. Our peace, if we're needing peace, he's number one. If we're looking for what the meaning of life is, Jesus is pointing us here and saying, God is number one. This is where we start. So we look at different attributes of God when we're like, what, what do we need to know about God? There's several attributes we can look at. We could say God is infinite. God is immutable or he's never changing. God is self-sufficient. He's omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, wise, just, good, faithful, merciful, gracious, holy, glorious. All of these things, we can say God is number one in all of these things. He's the one who knows all things. He's the one who can do all his holy will. He's the one who is everywhere all at once. But then we get in John, or first John, where the apostle John says, God is love. And we come at this passage that Jesus is saying, you love the Lord your God. And we see God is the one who is number one in love. He is primary in love. And so we need to look at the love of God, specifically this characteristic, before we get into what we do. So I will print out um, copies of this for everybody because I think it's worth just reading and spending time on. But I spent some time over the last couple weeks going through um, like 50 different verses about God's love for us. Um, and I wrote it up in a letter, and it's a full-page letter, but I'm going to just read the first couple sections and the ending of it for time's sake, and, and I think it would be good for us to just as families to maybe read through and look at and just enjoy, really. But I'm going to read this letter to you that is worked up, and these are all straight-up passages out of the Bible. The very ending comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible, so it's going to sound a little um, different. But when we think about the love of God, please just think of this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. For the Lord your God holds your right hand. It is he who says to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. 
For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. And from the Jesus Storybook Bible, but all the stars and the mountains and the oceans and the galaxies and everything were nothing compared to how much God loved his children. He would move heaven and earth to be near them always, whatever happened, whatever it cost him, he would always love them with his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That is the love that God has for us. Love not being, as 21st century Americans would think of this flowery like, oh, I love pizza. I love my car. I love you. Um, I love God. It's not that. Love being defined as a, an affection that we're willing to die for. That's what God is giving us here is an affection he was willing to die for. And as we think of God's love, we have to really go, uh, God, this, this is truth that doesn't come naturally to us. This is truth that you tell us from Genesis to Revelation through your word. He loves us. He cares for us. And the whole story pointing to Jesus' love is he was willing to die for us. He is crazy about you. He loves you. He has shown us his love. And if there's any doubt, take the, this letter and just pray that God would make his love known to, uh, to you today. So that is the, the right believing. That is a belief that we need to know as we come into what we are to do, which commandments are the greatest. We need to know God absolutely loves us. From this truth, we can then look on to the rest of Jesus's answer. So as we pick up verse 30, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall, with all the love that God has given us, with all the love that he has abiding in us, with all that he is filling us with, the redeemed people of God, loved by God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We're going to take the very first piece here. With all that we have, we turn around and love him back. Again, that love being defined as an affection we're willing to die for. We love him back. And Jesus gives us four areas of life. Most people, we only think of two. And those are the easiest two. They're the last two that are listed. Strength, mind. Those two, like we can put our, our, almost put our fingers on, like we can't quite on our mind, but we can, we can go, I can think, I can get this, I reason. And I can, I can put my hand on my body, my strength. But then he gives us soul and heart. So we're going to touch on those ones or move to those ones last. But we're going to think of strength first. So the word for strength here is eshus. Say that, Joel. As hoofs, as hoofs, right? As hoofs. This is like your strength. This is your body. This is your physical ability. As hoofs. This is your ability to swing a hammer. 
This is your ability to paint a drawing. This is your ability to play an instrument. This is your ability to use your voice, your strength. Some people, we would say, have a very strong voice, like they can project the question then, love your Lord, the Lord your God with all your strength, Jesus is saying what you have physically able to do, love the Lord with it. Love the Lord with your physical ability. So if you are one who can play a guitar really well, are you playing the guitar or are you a musician for your own glory? Or are you a musician trying to honor the Lord with your music, with your presence with what you have to give? Are you using that talent, your physical talent for him? If you're able to build buildings and you're swinging your, your, your hammer all day long, are you doing that so that you can just get rich off of making money? Or are you doing it because God has given you that skill? You're able to bless others with it. You're able to honor the Lord. He's, he's looking at you and saying, man, that I, it pleases me when, when Ben builds his house. Like that is a pleasing thing your voice? Do we use a power of debate or vocal projection to just win arguments and get your way? Or do you use your voice to honor the Lord with your speech? One that really is tangible for for my home, my boys like to wake up in the morning and their first question, so often their first question is, can I have a banana? Can I have a yogurt? Can I have food? And then we'll have a basket of fruit on the counter and all day long, can I have this? Can I have this? We can train our bodies one way or the other with our stomachs. We can honor the Lord or dishonor the Lord with our stomachs. We can say every time we pass by the peanut bowl, we can grab peanuts and just eat because and always satisfy that hunger, that, that want for food. We can just, oh yeah, I'm going to eat a yogurt. I'm going to eat a banana. I'm going to grab a sandwich. I'm going to do this. Or, and then that would lead to gluttony, which is dishonoring the Lord. Or we can say, you know what? I don't need to eat maybe this meal or I don't need to eat at this moment. I can wait until breakfast. And that's what we encourage our kids with. Like, no, you can wait till breakfast. It's only 20 minutes away. You can take a moment and train your stomach to honor the Lord and not lead to a life of gluttony, but rather one of discipline with your body. So are we honoring the Lord with our stomachs or with our hands or with our voices? That's the idea of the first one. Love the Lord your God with all your strength, eshus. The second one is your mind. And this one's a little longer. It's dianoa. dianoa. Travis, can you say that? Dianoa. Dianoa, yeah. This is your mind. This is your brain power or the faculty of thinking. It's your understanding, your desiring. It's the things that make your mind move forward from life experiences or your worldview. Um, in my mind, I've, I've gotten the opportunity to really like spend some time with Amanda going, this is how my mind works. My mind works like an EMS call. Like there's something that happens or there's a decision or a question and I have, it's like at the top of my mind and then there's two possible options and I go either A or B and which one makes more sense? I go to A and I come to this one and there's one or two and I work down this linear algorithm to come to an answer. And so she'll ask a question and I've worked through five or six bubbles and I'm down here at this answer. And she goes, how did you get there? And well, that's how my mind works. It's an algorithm. Um, 
I've recognized after 10 years of marriage, not every brain works like that. Um, some people's brains are more like a warehouse of boxes, like go get the box, open the box. This is the box of work and I'm doing all my stuff in my box of work and I put my box of work back and I grab my box of whatever, family, food, um, and you go back and you, know, you put your box away. Um, I've heard of brains being more like fruit jello where like you have all the little bits of fruit in there, which are your different thoughts, and they all just kind of wiggle and connect and touch each other, and people's brains can just go everywhere. And I don't, I don't get that one. I follow an algorithm. Um, but it's how we think, how we work through different things. Are you using your mind and how you think specifically to honor the Lord? So our minds the Bible says, need to be transformed into the mind of Christ. So this is something where we look and we go as Christians, as redeemed people of God, we need to seek to have our minds made into the mind of Christ. So when a thought, if you're someone who's prone to maybe depressive thoughts, when a depressive thought comes in, you can say, I'm going to love the Lord my God with my mind and either reject the depressive thought or to utilize the depressive thought for his glory. Maybe it turns it to prayer. Or maybe you're um, amped up and your mind is just racing and you're, you're just going like, how can I honor God with my thoughts right now? Utilizing your mind to go, I'm going to think this way. Or I'm going to put up a filter in my mind so that the things I'm thinking are not the things that come out of my mouth. I'm going to filter out my mind I'm going to say, God, I'm not going to think about that image or I'm not going to think about that, um, that possibility. I'm going to use my mind. I'm going to control and make my mind honor the Lord. So that's the idea of honoring or loving the Lord, your God, with all your dianoa, all your brain power, taking it and saying, this is what I'm going to think on. This is how I'm going to think. This is what I'm going to do. And our minds may be a little different, but we can all do that. Those two are the two basic ideas of life. Um, in the medical world, we say someone is physically dead if their brain isn't working. There's no electrical activity in their brain or their heart isn't working. There's no electrical activity in their heart. So in the world, we say with these two areas of life, this com compromises the whole of life. But as Christians, Jesus gives us two more areas of life that go further than that. Um, and that's where we get to then move into soul. And Karis, I want you to say suke. Suke, right? This is soul. This, it looks like psyche, but it's suke. This is the part of life that doesn't dissolve in death and it is designed for everlasting life. The suke is the God-breathed life that he gives us. So remember, Jesus saying, hear, oh, called out people of God, your suke, love the Lord your God with all of that God-breathed life that he gives you. This is the place where God can supernaturally aid us in our life. So when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together in Christ. That didn't happen 
in our, in our mind, in the Dianoa or the Eshus, in our strength, we were, we were alive there, but God made us alive in the suke. He made us alive in the soul. This is the place where we can be in, in fear and we're like of what's going on and we can be praying, God, your word says that you will give peace beyond understanding and I'm praying for your peace and God will go, here's your peace. And inside us, we're like, oh man, I have peace. And my mind calms down and my blood pressure drops and my pulse slows down a little bit and we could go, the peace of God supernaturally worked within us. That's how that works. That's the place where that works. Or we can be saying, I have a really confusing situation right now and I'm praying God for wisdom and he gives us that wisdom. That's coming out of the suke where, the, where God has given us life. He's given us maybe wisdom in confusion or faith in doubt or peace in the midst of fear. This is the part where God can work wholly in us and it just, it envelops our mind and it envelops our, our strength. But the fourth one, I think is the hardest to define. It's the heart. And I want everybody to say, cardia. Yeah, there you go, cardia. Cardia sounds like cardiac. And so we're gonna just think of physical body here for a second. We have our cardiac heart, right? It's in the middle of our body. It is the kind of the center of our physical bodies. So when we breathe in, that oxygen and nutrient or the oxygen and everything that comes in goes and makes its way to our heart. Our heart then disperses it through our body and then all the toxins and everything that are going back to the lungs come back through the heart and we get rid of it. The, you eat food and the nutrients go into your bloodstream and your heart then disperses it around. It's the center. The cardia is the center of the human life. So as it's the center of our body, we would say it's the center of humanity or the center seat where all of our thoughts, where all of our passions and desires and appetites and affections and purposes and endeavors all come together and form who we fully are. Uh, this, is, this is the driving force of whatever we trust in most and are committed to the most is the heart of a person. And I think it's easier for parents to kind of get because we can look at our kids from the moment they're born and all the way through our relationship with them and we can look at our kids and go, I can see the struggles of my kids. I can see the decisions of my kids and I can talk to them about their decision making I can see how my kids interact with different people and you can really focus in and I can look at Titus and I can say, I can imperfectly, but see his heart, like the decision-making passions of his life. Like I can see that. And spouses can see it in each other where you, you can look at your wife or your husband and you can go, I, I trust the heart, that place of my spouse where I trust them to make a wise decision or I trust them in this situation or I, I almost can guess how they're going to answer this question that I need to ask them because I know their heart. I know the decision-making, the spirit of God within them, how God works in them. I know their past and how that influences their decisions. That is the heart of a person. Jesus is saying, love the Lord your God with that spot of your life. Because the opposite of that is idolatry. 
that is where idols reside. So if every decision we make is based off of money, like how's this going to affect me monetarily? If that is our decision-making driver, then money is the idol in our heart. If food is the decision-making factor and we just love to feed that gut and gluttony, then that is the idol sitting in your heart. Um, It can be simple things like food or money. It can be good things like work. Like if every decision is made based off of your work, then that is the idol of your heart. Or maybe it's new age spiritualism of like, oh, just everything's connected and it's perfect and it's flowing in me and out of me. And then that is the idol that's holding in your heart. But God is saying here, Jesus is saying here, if you want to know what's most important, love God with that, in that number one sense in the decision-making seat of your life. Trust or love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I think this last couple weeks has given us a great opportunity to see where our hearts are. Um, Is it in the stock market? Is it in food in your pantry? Is it in the ability to buy stuff off of Amazon? Um, I, I think of like, oh, mighty Amazon is failing people at this moment. Like, it's, you can't get toilet paper on Amazon. Like, it's not anywhere. Um, what is compelling our decisions right now when things are getting raw? What is compelling our decisions? What's compelling our actions really do reveal where our hearts are. Jesus then says, you're loved by God. Love him with every bit that you have, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he gives him a second. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. So this one is not part of the Shema of Deuteronomy. This comes from Leviticus 19, verse 18. And Jesus says, once you have Known that you are loved by God, O called out redeemed people of the Lord. Once you know that and you are setting God as number one in your life, in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, in your strength, then love the person next to you the way you want them to love you. It's the golden rule, if you would. It is Jesus's golden rule. Do to others as you would want them to do to you. The idea of this is really quite simple. If I'm hungry and I don't have the ability to get food, I would want someone to offer me some food. So that would be how I would look at someone who's hungry. Boy, in my, if I were in that position, I would really want someone to give me food. If I were cold, I'd put on a coat unless I didn't have a coat. Then I'd really want someone to hand me a blanket. So that's how we would then love someone next to us. When we're sleepy, we go and take a nap. But if it, if you can't provide a warm shelter for yourself, boy, I would want someone to offer me a room or a bed or a warm meal or a blanket. These are the kind of ideas of how we are to, how we love ourselves and we would want people to treat us. So that's how we then need to treat each other. And something that's great about siblings is that's where you really get to play it out. 
That's where you get to learn it, right? I really want my brother to let me borrow his welder, right? I want Zach to borrow, let me borrow his welder. I need to be willing to like let him borrow my van. I don't know, something like that. Like I need to be willing to offer something if I really want Zach to be able to, you know, or Keith to let me have something that he has. Like I have to be willing to do that. So to brothers and sisters, Christians in the church, um, I think our church is really good about this. We are really quick to say, you need this? I have this. Um, use this. Or I have a few minutes. Like, let me come over and plow your field for you all of a sudden. Like, we're really good about this as a church. I think we do an excellent job loving one another. The cool thing within the church is that there is a special blessing God gives us as we love one another. So if everybody would turn to 1 John chapter 4 really quick, there's this sweet, special dynamic that takes place in the church. And if you're looking for uh, an absolute authoritative book or commentary on this conversation between Jesus and the scribe, just read the book of 1 John. It is like the book that explains God's love for us, our love to him, and our love for others. 1 John, though, chapter 4, verse 12 is where we're going to get to, but I'm going to start in verse 11. We are told, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is a really fun passage for the church because we could say like so many things this last week circled the drain. Like we could just watch him just kind of go. Like things circled the drain or things spun out of control. Like we can see that happening It's a fact of life. Things like that do take place. But this is the opposite of spinning out of control. This is like an agape tornado that takes place here. If we love God, verse 11, if God so loved us, we learn that as Christians, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. So we will learn God's love if we're loving one another. God is abiding in us and his love is perfected in us. So if I'm learning that God is loving me as a Christian and I'm getting to love God back, that compels me to love my neighbor, to love the person, the next person in the church. And if I'm loving my neighbor, then God's love is being perfected in us, which then helps me know God's love more. And in return, I love God more. And then it compels me to love people more. And then that starts spinning. Like it's almost like a spinning spiral here of I'm learning God's love. I'm loving God. I'm loving others. That causes me to learn God's love where I'm loving God and I'm loving others. And as the church builds in this, it becomes this great big movement of God's love towards us and our love towards him and each other. And it just keeps growing. And I think, church, we can take a great deal of encouragement from this that God is teaching us his love and 
our love for him and for each other. I think we do this. I think the love of the church has grown so tangibly over the last eight years since its beginning. It just is something that keeps growing bigger and bigger. It's something that keeps getting better and better within the church. I truly believe that, and I love being a part of it. And I mean that. I love being a part of it. We can grow in this, or we could bite and devour. Like, we have options. As a church, we can grow in love, or we can bite and devour. So what is the best example of this? Jesus gave it to us in the Good Samaritan. He says, if you want to know how to love your neighbor, look at the Good Samaritan. This was a man who came along a road and found another man beat up on the side of the road. That Good Samaritan had to, at that point, go, am I going to choose to love this guy or not? If I'm bloody in a ditch, I hope someone stops. (laughs) If I'm beat up, I hope someone stops. So he's going, I should probably do this. He makes a calculated risk. I might get beat up too. But then he takes time and he takes energy and he takes money and he he works to the healing of this guy in the ditch. That is like our lives. That is the best example of how we are to love one another. It takes a calculated risk. It takes time. It takes effort. It a lot of time takes money. But we are to love one another and we will be growing in God's love if we do that. So Jesus' big answer to one of life's big questions is know that God loves you. Your redeemed people of the Lord. Know that God loves you. Love him with everything you have. Make him number one in your life, in every aspect of your life, even the parts that are, we don't quite fully understand. And then go and love one another as well. But in this comes a warning. In this passage back in Mark chapter 12 comes a warning. Jesus then looks at the scribe. The scribe gave his a, a stamp of approval. You are right, And Jesus, verse 34, says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. He did not say, scribe, you're saved. You're in the kingdom. The scribe knows and agrees with, this is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus didn't say, You figured it out. Your mental capacity got you saved. He didn't say that. He said, you're not far from the kingdom. Jesus, I think, gives us a warning as a church when we think about our hearts, as we think about what is driving our lives, that you can know the perfect answers to the biggest questions and still not be a part of the kingdom. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, that's what we've been talking about. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That statement of Christ is the scariest words ever. To think that someone would live their whole life and then get face to face with Christ and be called a worker of lawlessness and cast away from him, commanded away from him. But he says, many, not everyone who says to me this, but on that day, many will say to me. There's a warning here that comes, and it is in the fact that we are sinful people. We, in our left to ourselves, reject God, hold every single possible idol as number one in our hearts, We in and of ourselves run away from and refuse and are enemies with God. We who were were dead in our trespasses and sins. We do not hold the summation of the law. We can't. We can't do it in and of ourselves. But in another, in Matthew's recording of this conversation, Jesus adds this one statement. He says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And the one who could perfectly love God, who perfectly knew God's love for him, who perfectly loved his neighbor, demonstrated that love for us as he's the one who hung on the cross. The full summation of the law hangs on these two commands And Jesus is the one who showed us that love as he hung on the cross. We can't do it. He did it. And when he did it, he bore everything that we can't do. All of our sin, he bore everything on himself. And then God then turns around and gives us his perfectness back to us. His fulfillment of the law then is transferred to us. His righteousness is transferred to us. His perfect understanding of God's love for us was transferred to us. His love for God is given to us. We can then love God back. We can then love each other as we would love ourselves. Jesus, in his love for us, allows us to love in this sense. Christ fulfilled the law. We are in Christ. That is the fulfillment for us. So as we look in concluding this, and we ask ourselves, not am I fulfilling the law by doing these things perfectly, because we can't. Ask ourselves, is God's love real to me? Is God showing me and filling me with the love that he has given me in Christ? Are my decisions and my actions being ran through this fountain of God's love? If the answer is no, or the answer is not really anymore like it used to or it has at times, then I ask you to please spend time today and this week praying and seeking the Lord to fill you with his love. Seeking the Lord that maybe this is a, you've never accepted Christ's love for you. You've never accepted his sacrifice for you. 
talk with someone about it. Say, I, I think I want this. I think God is calling me into his love. I think that God is calling me into his kingdom. I think I'm scared to hear be gone from me in that day. Talk to someone about it. Pray about it. Look into it. Ask God to rekindle fires if they've died out. If the answer is yes, I am making decisions based on God being number one. I do know that Christ is the one who fulfills the law for me. And from that, I get to enjoy this relationship with him. Then fan it into flame. And as a church, let's continue to grow in knowing the love of God, loving God back, and then loving another, each other as ourselves. Do not underestimate the power of the blood of Christ through us as we go out in love. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for our Savior who did everything perfectly, sinlessly. Everything that world history shows we as humans cannot do, he did it. And we thank you that he bore our sin on the cross and he transferred to us his sinlessness. He's made us alive together in him. Help us, God, to grow in the knowledge of your love and loving you with everything we have and loving each other. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.